Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Now, what do these three things have in common? Transgender activist Dylan Mulvaney scoring a sit-down interview with the President of the United States and asking if state governments have a right to prevent kids having their genitals surgically mutilated. Tanya Plibersek snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef and pledging to spend $1.2 billion to save it from climate change. And Rishi Sunak becoming the new British Prime Minister. Well, they are all symbolic of how big, useless, self-indulgent and unrepresentative Western Liberal governments around the world have become. Let's take them one by one. The United States is suffering the worst inflation in decades. Its economy and global status is in possibly terminal decline. Cities are being overrun by crime and homelessness. And the president finds time to talk to a man whining that some states won't allow kids to undergo radical and unnecessary genital surgery. Australian Minister for the Environment Tanya Plibersek flies on a plane powered by oil to Queensland, fangs out to the Great Barrier Reef on a diesel-powered metal boat, puts on some diving gear made from oil byproducts, and promises, promises to spend your money protecting the reef from something that doesn't exist, but if it did, it would be caused by the very industry that got her there. And Rishi Sunak is the new Prime Minister of Britain who was elected by neither the people of Britain nor even the ordinary members of the Conservative Party. He's also an acolyte of the World Economic Forum who thinks fossil fuels need to be abolished and wants to introduce a central bank digital currency, the type that could easily be controlled by an authoritarian government to control your consumption of food, travel and whatever else it deems contrary to the common good. Ordinary people didn't ask for any of this, but it's still foisted on them. Tonight's federal budget is another example. A federal budget is meant to outline the government's plan for the forthcoming financial year. This, wasn't, this one doesn't do that. So what's it for? Well, it gives new federal treasurer Jim Chalmers an opportunity to renege on the promises his party made only six months ago in a federal election and theatrically announce his government's real agenda, the one you weren't allowed to know about when you were deciding which party to vote for. Remember those promises that wages would keep in line with inflation and that your power bills would go down by $275 a year? If you believed them at the time, then perhaps Chalmers' conciliatory promise to flick you a refund on childcare and pay for six months parental leave will help soothe your disappointment. The most galling thing about it all is their faux sincerity. It will be strengthening our economy, providing cost of living relief for families without putting pressure on inflation. If Albo really cared about families, he wouldn't be forcing them to switch to expensive renewable energy or drive expensive electric cars. If he cared about Indigenous families, he would do something about the grog going into outback Aboriginal communities, which is destroying families and ruining kids' lives. 
Instead, he's pushing for a constitutional change to give his Indigenous inner city supporters more political power than all other Australians. To his credit, he is proposing to build a million new homes for young Australian couples to start families in this mini budget. But such a policy wasn't necessary before governments became so huge. The market simply sorted it out and almost every young couple could find a house they could afford. This mini budget and this policy is another reminder, if anyone needed, of just how unimaginably huge, bloated and intrusive the federal government has become. Here's a graph produced by the Federal Treasury of taxation as a percentage of GDP since Federation. It started out at 5% and is now 30. There is an apocryphal story that our first Prime Minister, Edmund Barton, could carry the entire federal government's affairs around in a single briefcase. Now you'd need a suitcase just to hold all the press releases from a single day reminding us how lucky we are to be so well governed. Are we though? One of the first significant statements Jim Chalmers made upon becoming treasurer was in July to the Australia New Zealand Leadership Forum. He said he wanted to learn from the Kiwis way of including quote unquote well-being into the budget calculations. Quote, I've asked Treasury to make measuring what matters and an Australian approach to well-being a focus of the budget in October. Well, I can't think of a better way to increase the, increase the well-being of Australians than to get the government and the bureaucracy out of our lives. We're overtaxed and overgoverned. None of us actually asked Chalmers to manage our well-being, but now that he's offered, he could start by admitting that our government has grown into a mostly self-perpetuating bureaucratic blob that needs to be dramatically reduced so we can just get on with our lives. Oh, and next time Tanya Plibersek wants to go snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef, tell her she can pay for it with her own money. Well, there are some serious topics to cover with Alexandra Marshall today, so let's get straight into them. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you for having me, Fred. First, the Queensland Government has passed the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law and Other Legislation Amendment Bill, that's a mouthful, which empowers the state government to dictate what treatments doctors recommend for their patients. Well, this contravenes the World Medical Association Agreements of 1947, which were a direct response to the German Nazi government's medical orders for doctors to experiment on, torture and kill prisoners in concentration camps. Now, Alexandra, what power does this new law give the Queensland government and does it steer us, horrifyingly, in the direction of Nazi Germany? 
Well, they could have saved some time by calling it the medical tyranny bill, because that's what it is. And it has disturbed doctors because they will no longer have the freedom to say what they think when it comes to medical advice. They must now follow the, the medical device of the government, of the state, which is a position that nobody wants to be in, because as we know, the government never makes mistakes and they're always right about everything. Uh, but yes, this is one of those things that even the AMA has called it complete lunacy because uh, it's controlling doctors and medicine from a centralised authority that is not an expert authority. And as you say, it does bring us into shades of what went wrong in the last century when it came to medical practitioners. And the, as far as I understand it from the Queensland doctors, there's a, once the bill is passed, it's meant to be then passed on to other states. So it's supposed to be a nation-wide initiative to basically instill the worst parts of the COVID uh, last two years that we had into law forever. So now when the government says this is the medical advice, the GPs cannot contradict them. They must follow it or they will be struck off as GPs. Now, that is not good for anybody. Well, it's interesting that they call it the national law. How can Queensland say that they are passing? How can the Queensland state government say it is passing a national law? It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to anybody. But as far as I understand it, and from what the writers in The Spectator, I urge everyone to go and have a look. There's a great article in The Spectator this morning, or maybe yesterday by the time you watch this, about it. Um, it is meant to be a national bill. So it will be adopted by the other state premiers. And so I'm not sure how they managed to wrinkle that, but that's what Queensland has gone and done. And the real point, Fred, is uh, we all expect Queensland Labor government to be quite tyrannical. I mean, we've seen plenty, plenty of evidence that they're tyranny. Uh, but the Liberals supported the bill and the Liberals were told what this bill contained and how dangerous it was. And they still went ahead of it. And their explanation was, well, it has some good things in it. Well, I'm sorry, medical censorship and medical tyranny, it doesn't matter how many good little dot points it might have, the whole thing is a bust and they should have opposed it, and yet they didn't. So who needs enemies when you have the Queensland Liberal Party? Yeah, exactly, how Machiavellian. <laughs> well, during COVID, we've already see, we're already becoming acclimatised to this kind of politics because during COVID, politicians and bureaucrats threatened doctors with deregistration if they spoke out against the official narrative that the virus was deadly and the experimental vaccines were the only solution. Are there any signs that our leaders are any less authoritarian, authoritarian now? So having been proved wrong for the last two years and that they are actually the source of fake news and misinformation, they've decided to make it even more difficult to cement into law permanently beyond emergency legislation their idea that they have to be the assumed authority and right on everything, and if you question them, then you can get struck off or go to jail. Now, that is a sign of a, a political system that is addicted to power instead of being addicted to the truth. And this should worry everybody because it's not just going to be the medical practitioners they try and control. It will be what you read and what you hear in print. They will pass ever more coercive laws so that they don't lose what they enjoyed during the last two years of the pandemic. And don't use Machiavellian's name in vain. He warned against this sort of level of tyranny. He was against centralized control. He may have seen the darkness in humanity, but he was not in favor of it. Well, thank you for correcting me on that point. Anyway, <laughs> he's one of my political heroes. He may be one of the cleverest observers of polit politics ever, ever born. Well, I mean, yeah, but he did he did make politics turn politics into a profession, really, didn't he? He observed 
He observed human nature and warned political leaders about the repercussions of their decisions. And uh, one of the things that he was a big fan of is that the state should, by and large, leave people alone to their own devices, and in that way, you will have a better civilization. And I think he was right in that one. Well, I can't argue with, on, with you on that one. Well, <laughs> so we're referring at the moment to a piece in The Spectator by uh, Australian Medical Professional Society Secretary Cara Thomas who says that if the bill, this bill is adopted by all states, it will be the, quote, end of medicine and the death of science. Now, Alexandra, why is there no backlash against this? Well, this is a question for the Liberal government. Why didn't they have an opposition? They are meant to oppose this sort of thing. Why don't they stand up and say, no? Why didn't the Liberals throughout the entire pandemic in the state stand up and say, no? It's not like we... Uh, are not sure what's going on. We know tyranny is wrong. We know that the government overriding medical professionals is wrong. We've had hundreds of years to show us that this is the case. So why don't the Liberals have a backbone? Why aren't there any conservative forces out there? And that's not a question to ask me because you and me, we are, we're opposing it. Your viewers oppose it. The question is, why aren't the conservative politicians who have power, who sit in parliament, why don't they oppose it? Maybe you can have one of them on your show and ask them for it. <laughs> it's if one you can of the drag key. them down well, there. Yes, exactly. If any are watching, but call me. My, my, uh, my, my email address is uh, at the bottom of the screen. So here's another example of governments imposing unnecessary dangers on citizens. Federal Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen has made it very clear he wants as many of us as possible to own electric cars. But they are fire hazards. Here's one that spontaneously combusted with its owner inside in Vancouver a few months ago. The car's electric system uh, shut down and the owner had to break the windows to escape before the fire got out of hand. He's actually lucky to be alive. I've heard some people weren't so lucky uh, in one of these electric cars. Alexandra, are these electric cars getting more or less safe? Well... There's a few reasons why electric cars aren't the future. No matter what Labor tries to do, there isn't enough lithium, there's not enough raw materials to do it, and they're getting more expensive. However, as the governments try and legislate the market into changing, uh, there's a push to make cheaper and cheaper electric vehicles. And as we know, and as has been demonstrated in China, the cheaper you try and make these cars, the more dangerous they become. And so China, which has probably the best market to de demonstrate this problem, they've got lots of cheap EVs and they are catching fire in their hundreds every year. And they are causing, as you say, fire hazards. Now, if this happens uh, in the street, you can, you can see the footage, they, the, the cars burn very hot, much hotter than a petrol car and they're difficult to put out. Now wonder what happens to an EV that catches fire in an underground car park in a city apartment building surrounded by other electric vehicles. You end up with these noxious, very hot fires burning inside enclosed spaces that nobody can put out. They pose an extraordinary risk to safety and life. And yet you'll hear from the government that they're safe and effective, the same narrative we've heard from other places around. Now, this is a, a problem that's going to increase exponentially, as China has found, and ignoring it isn't going to solve it. So the question is, what do we do around the fire safety of these EVs? Because they're most likely to catch fire when they're either sitting parked and stopped or plugged in and charging, which means they're going to be in their car parks at home. Exactly. Well, we saw from that video that that 
on the open street, a fire truck can approach the car and and hopefully put the put the fire out. They takes a lot of water to put out a fire in an electric car. But nonetheless, if it happened in an underground car park, how does a fire truck reach that? They I mean, actually the don't know. So this is the problem. They don't have a plan for what happens when these electric vehicles catch fire in residential or commercial car parks. They don't know. And goodness knows what it's going to do to your insurance complexes. And let alone the people, I don't know if you saw, but in the early part of the article, the Australian was carrying a story where this guy comes to his apartment building and plugs his car into the mains for the building. So everyone pays to charge his electric vehicle. So they've got to not only outfit the buildings to allow to charge these cars, but they've also got to work out what to do safety-wise. And no one's got an answer. And Labor's not interested in answer, except for maybe charging the taxpayer to find one, which well, is what will happen. I have, <laughs> we'll to give, I have to give credit to that bloke who's plugging it into the, the common PowerPoint at his, at, at his apartment block, because charging these things isn't cheap, is it? But what he said was that his fellow apartment building uh, renters were happy to cover the cost. Now, oh, somehow, of they were. Yeah. somehow I doubt that might be the case. It feels slightly like fiction. I bet he's the one who never puts the bins out on bin day as well. <laughs> Good luck getting your neighbours to buy you a cup of coffee, let alone charge your car for free. So, well, everything is political now, Alexandra. The advice a doctor gives a patient, the car you drive, surely the humble cup of tea is not also prone to all this politics. This really, really angers me because I'm a big tea drinker and tea lover. I've got a whole wall of tea at home. Like it was so bad my mum bought a cabinet to put the tea in, right? I've, I've got a tea problem. And now all of a sudden my tea house is sending me these woke emails about how to improve diversity, how to save the planet, uh, you know, about gender, whatever. They've gone full communist totalitarian woke. And uh, I've, I've ignored it for a while, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to click on these emails and see just how crazy they have become. And I regret it uh, because they've got full manifestos. I, I'm kidding you, like 20 pages about um, how they're now ranking their staff via their staff's race, gender, sexuality and disability, and then giving themselves as a company a credit rating based upon the makeup of their staff, which we used to call discrimination with a little bit of racial supremacy thrown to the side. I mean, this stuff is frightening. But what's really frightening, uh, Fred, is the fact that all their net zero UN guidelines, like they're actually signed up to UN certify themselves basically about their goals. Well, their sustainability goals are what has killed tea production in the world. Sri Lanka has lost 70% of its production because of following UN net zero goals. And that has plunged the country and its people into poverty. Now, you won't see that on an email coming out of your work tea shop. Yeah, but never mind all that. Does knowing that the tea company is uh, diverse and sustainable make the tea taste better? Actually, the tea's gotten significantly worse since they started playing with this. Um, but what I think is funny is it, all of this virtue signaling, of course, we know it's a cult, it's a religion. It comes from a place of deep-seated guilt. And as I point out in my piece in The Spectator, there's no business more, uh, uh, no bigger beneficiary of the empire and uh, colonialism and the East India Company than your local work tea shop. Because without the British Empire, there would be no tea. And they can't, they can't deal with that. They don't want to come to terms with uh, that little reality. Indeed. But just quickly before you go, what I mean, these are relatively small businesses we're talking about here. What really motivates these people? You said it's a cult, but well, I mean, it's hard enough running a business these days. Why do they add to the workload 
by signing up to these UN mandates? Well, I'm sure it starts as a marketing ploy, trying to market their tea to the work university culture. But what concerns me, I mean, if it was just one tea shop going full communist manifesto, I mean, they've literally got videos about how to become part of the, of the collectivist worldview, right? They're, they're full off the, off the edge there. But the government, the Australian government, including the Liberal government before today, are trying to push all companies in Australia to engage in this glorified form filling to start meeting UN goals and to rank their workforces by basically by a virtue. And so this is coming to every single company in Australia, including your viewers, if they run a small business, they will be required to fill these things out. And uh, when you read how crazy they are, it is nothing but politics. They're trying to use, like the United Nations is trying to use corporate and capitalism to lean on the political systems of our country because they weren't able to get there on their own merits. They've had to go via these businesses. And businesses are volunteering to be part of the chain. It's, <sighs> it's well, depressing. I, I, it I've switched to coffee, okay? okay. I've, I've <laughs> well, got rid of my tea and I'm well, now drinking coffee. <laughs> let's finish on a positive <laughs> note then. Well done, Alexandra, and thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose eminently sensible opinions can be found daily on The Spectator Australia's website. Well, most of us had never heard of Pakistan-born New South Wales Greens Senator Maureen Faruqi until she posted this offensive tweet on September 9, the day after Queen Elizabeth died. I cannot mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land and wealth of colonised peoples. This prompted Queensland Senator Pauline Hanson to say also on Twitter that Faruqi obviously didn't appreciate the history of her adopted country, so she should pack her bags and quote, piss off back to Pakistan, unquote. Faruqi lodged a complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission saying, quote, hostility to migrants and people of colour will not be tolerated, unquote. However, hostility towards the country that welcomed you and provided you with the freedom and prosperity to live a decent, happy life, well, that's not only tolerated, it's encouraged. Faruqi says she has been told to go back to Pakistan more times than she can count, but, quote, I won't be silenced and neither will the millions of others around the world affected by the brutal reality of colonisation. Dark-skinned immigrant receives racist taunts and is told to leave the country because of colonialism. It's all a bit jumbled up, but you'd have to say still an open and shut case for a woke institution like the Human Rights Commission. But wait. It turns out that Faruqi, in some ways, agrees with Hansen about the merits of her returning to Pakistan. In August, she was quoted by SBS saying she regretted relinquishing her Pakistani citizenship, which Section 44 of the Australian Constitution required her to do in order to run for a seat in the Senate. Quote, I just felt as if I was being forced to give up my birthright, you know, to give up my history and my culture. There is absolutely no reason to have this particular law in our constitution. Section 44 has to go. 
Well, if she dislikes our constitution so much that she wants to change it so that Pakistani citizens can run for our parliament, and she regrets having given up her Pakistani, Pakistani citizenship in the first place, well, surely that simply confirms Senator Hansen's suggestion that maybe Australia isn't the right place for her. How will the Australian Human Rights Commission handle this one? Will it defend Faruqi's right to be offensive and then be offended when someone pushes back? Or will it defend Hansen's right to free speech? I know what my money's on. Well, there are disturbing signs that conservatism is declining, not among ordinary people, but among politicians. My next guest, West Australian law academic Rocco Loyakono, says it's getting increasingly difficult to find conservative politicians who are bold enough to propose conserving anything. And he joins me now. Rocco, welcome. Great to be with you, Fred. Firstly, Rocco, let's talk about Boris Johnson. He seemed like a conservative at first, promising to deliver Brexit, which is essentially conserving the idea of sovereignty. That's a novel one, which Britain had temporarily comp compromised. But did Johnson turn out to be a conservative in the end? Well, no, on everything else. Uh, he governed as, uh, as a left of centre uh, politician would. Um, particularly when he went down the path of uh, net zero. Um, and you can only see that uh, after 2019 and through 2020 um, with COVID, I mean, they, they spent up big, they abandoned any pretense of maintaining fiscal discipline and then went down this uh, net zero path. Um, and that's, I think, what obviously got Johnson into trouble. Uh, the, the whole party gate thing, in my view, and in the view of many, um, was simply a pretext um, uh, to get rid of him. Uh, the whole uh, unpopularity of the Conservative government, uh, I believe, started uh, when they abandoned these Conservative principles and uh, embraced this uh, net zero cult, um, which meant that uh, people who uh, put them into government in that red wall were the ones who were facing the higher energy bills, uh, the higher tax burden and all these other kind of things, uh, which... Uh, traditionally conservatives are supposed to argue against because that is their natural constituency. It is indeed. But when you say they had to get rid of him, the party itself isn't behaving like a conservative party either. So who actually got rid of him? Well, this is the thing. I mean, the conservatives, the conservative party in the UK, and as we've seen in Australia, uh, they, haven't behaved, they haven't behaved like conservative parties for many years. Um, the, the, the thing about uh, Johnson was that obviously he was the only one to argue against the, the zeitgeist of Brexit. So when Partygate came along, it was a convenient excuse. Um, and for them, uh, the I think the now preferred candidate uh, for the people who wanted to get rid of Boris, Rishi Sunak, has, has now been installed. Uh, a, a, a hedge fund manager, a, a billionaire, who uh, has probably as much in common with with the, uh, with the everyday person and, and his or her problems as I have with Eskimos, which is to say <laughs> nothing at all. Yeah, you only have one word for snow. Anyway, so listen, um, Rocco, let's just get back to Boris, though. Um, just We'll get back to Sunak in, Sunak in a minute. But, I mean, Boris had a, uh, an approval rating in April 2020 of 66%. 
Um, it, it dropped pretty quickly soon after that because, uh, you know, the honeymoon period doesn't last forever. But it was a steady decline to all the way to 25% when he was toppled in August. Now, as you pointed out, this coincides with the COVID lockdowns and his embracing of net zero. Isn't it obvious that the, that the two, that there's a causal relationship there? Well, I mean, the, the, that's it. And the, the, the conservative platform traditionally is built on uh, respect for the rule of law and civil liberties and also economic liberalism. And those things throughout COVID were abandoned, um, and particularly over the last two years were abandoned. Um, the, the, the idea that, um, that at Lord Sumption uh, summed it up perfectly when he said we've seen the greatest trashing of, of civil liberties uh, in, two, in over 200 years. Um, and probably Johnson would have gone against his natural instincts, you would have thought, uh, in, that kind of, in that kind of thing. And it became obvious to many um, when his then chief health advisor broke the lockdown rules to go off and have a night out with his, with his girlfriend, that this thing should have, this, that these lockdowns really um, were, were uh, untenable, but he still persisted with them. Um, and then, uh, then what was it in late 2020 when, uh, when they were starting to open up again, uh, he proposed this eat out to help out, which was spending squillions of dollars um, and then towards the end of it was the end of 2020 because COVID's a respiratory illness, and when winter comes along, that's when respiratory illnesses thrive. Everyone was locked back up again, so, locked back down again. So um, it was it was a complete uh, abandoning of those key conservative tenets of respect for civil liberties and, and economic conservatism and liberalism. Well, yeah, let's talk about some of those key conservative points in relation to Liz Truss now, because she promised tax cuts and to find money to subsidise people's extortionate power bills. Both of these are examples of fiscal recklessness that the finance, finance markets were ready to punish her for. So was she punished for abandoning conservative um, principles as well? Well, the thing with uh, Liz Truss was that, for me, she's a symptom, not the cause. Um, Liz Truss has come after you've got 10 years, 10 to 12 years, because the Tories have been in government in the UK since 2010. And over that time, um, they, they, they came in at the time of the global financial crisis and uh, this idea that you could spend up big, this magic money theory, um, Keynesianism on steroids, it seems to have been the orthodoxy. And um, interestingly, um, she didn't have the wherewithal to, to argue against that because it's after all this time, people got too comfortable and the markets got too comfortable with this idea that you could spend like there was no tomorrow. Um, and then all of a sudden, oh, hang on, but we can't have tax cuts to do that. Um, I, I can't understand uh, why the, 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 the difference is there. It's more or less the same thing. It's just whether a cat is black or white, it's the same thing. But the problem with Liz Truss, in my view, probably this trust in my view, is that she put herself out as the thatch, the next thatcher, but she didn't have the skills or the wherewithal to argue the point that this was the way to go. Um, and again, I see that as a symptom of conservatives abandoning this idea and vacating the field of arguing for economic liberalism and economic conservatism over the last uh, 10 to 12 years. So when the t so when push comes to shove and you get someone who's prepared to do it, um, 
we get this reaction. So her demise has caused a lot of instability, not just in Britain, but around the world. Rishi Sunak is trying to right the ship, but that instability is difficult to deny. Do you think, given she didn't do her job very well, but did she really deserve to lose her job after such a short time? Well, no, I, I don't think she did because uh, the question is, you know, if you, if you want stability, then you've obviously got to give leaders a chance. And that's been part of the problem that um, we've had this revolving door. I think someone uh, said the other day that I've got a four-month-old baby and uh, this baby's seen four, uh, two monarchs and four prime ministers or something, something like that. Um, so it's all well and good to talk about stability, but it, obviously to, stability to um, the bedwetting uh, uh globalist uh, type Tory is to keep net zero, uh, to keep magic money theory, uh, to keep the money markets happy, um, while uh, the stability for the everyday person is to have less of a tax burden and to not have to choose between putting food on the table or ha having heat. <laughs> keeping yeah. the house warm. Exactly. <laughs> well, let, let, let's talk about that. So, so Rishi Sunak seems to be uh, slightly more sensible, um, but is also, we must admit, is a product of the globalists at the World Economic Forum. Do you think he is actually a conservative? I think the true conservatives in the party um, were not uh, Liz Truss or uh, Rishi Sunak. I think that the true conservatives... Uh, in the party were, were, were would have been represented by Kemi Badenoch, um, who's uh, particularly out there fighting the culture wars, um, and uh, obviously was eliminated uh, reasonably early on in the in the leadership challenge early in the year, um, possibly because she didn't have enough cabinet experience. So um, it, it was it was difficult either to see either Rishi Sunak or. This trust as, as true conservatives. I don't see Rishi Sunak as a, as a true conservative. We know that, yes, he's a globalist, World Economic Forum, uh, hedge fund manager, and uh, he'll be giving that stability of continuing net zero and uh, continuing down that path while the tax burden grows ever bigger um, and uh, the middle class continues to struggle. Now, that stability for those in the gentlemen's clubs who will smoke their cigars and clink their gin, gin and tonics but it's not stability for the everyday person who, uh, as I say, is going to have to choose between putting food on the table or keeping their house warm this winter. Well, how do you see the state of conservative politics around the world then, Rocco? I mean, what should, should for example, should conservatives have stood up for freedom during the pandemic a bit more? Look, absolutely, and I think they're paying the price for that. Um, you, look at, um, you look at conservatives around the world who are actually standing up um, for freedom. You look at uh, Ron DeSantis, um, uh, Gavin Youngkin, the governor in Virginia, um, they're doing very, very well um, because they're standing up and uh, for, for conservative values and they're fighting the culture wars and they're out there saying, look, a lot of this uh, extreme draconian attitude uh, to COVID was completely wrong and completely discriminatory. Over, over the weekend, we had the, uh, the uh, conservative Governor, uh, Conservative Provincial Leader of Alberta come out and say, look, the discrimination that took place uh, over COVID, particularly in relation to unvaccinated people, was, was completely wrong. Um, and while, whereas uh, in Australia, 
um, conservative parties who adopted this uh, Me Too on, on the COVID lockdowns, particularly we saw that here in West Australia with the Liberal Party. We're seeing it in the Liberal Party in Victoria and we're probably going to see it with the Liberal Party in New South Wales. Um, they're going to be punished for it. Um, the other thing about uh, conservatism, uh, I think we're also at the same point where we were uh, back in the 1970s, um, where Keynesianism obviously was the order of the day um, and there was a lot of free money uh, around. Um, and Margaret Thatcher at the time was presented with a brief by uh, her civil servants who said, look, the welfare state it's ramp is rampant, but the tax burden is too high, which is punishing the middle class and that's forcing them to take their skills elsewhere. Um, so, and people like Thatcher at the time, conservatives at the time, were considered a minority, just like what we are now. But you have to have the force of the argument and not vacate the field and say, look, we need to go back to that. Well, and, just, and take on and take that on. Well, Lee, let's take them on. <laughs> Fighting words, Rocco. But just before you go, because we've almost run out of time, do we need to rethink the way we choose leaders? Look, absolutely. Um, and, and, I mean, we've had this discussion uh, previously. I, we discussed the possibility of the Liberal Party uh, electing its leader from the members, because if you had that, you wouldn't have got, I don't think, Malcolm Turnbull. You, the, 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 the party base would have stuck with Tony Abbott. But the, the problem that we're seeing is look at what Liz Truss was surrounded with um, yeah, um, in terms of the, the, the Conservative uh, MPs. Um, you, you had people in her own party um, who were ready to, to abandon her at the, at the drop of a hat. Um, and we have the same here uh, in Australia uh, with the Liberals ready to, to uh, abandon uh, Tony Abbott at the drop of a hat. And look what it, what it produced as, as, as the Liberal Party well, leaders. Yes, that's true. But, but Rocco, and, and a marketing exactly. But Rocco, very quickly, how do we change? What, what, how do we change it? Well, I think there has to be far more input, has to be far more input from the party base, um, particularly in, in, um, in Australia, uh, definitely. Um, more input into people actually getting, uh, getting input into democracy. And also, I think we've seen a good example with Alex Antic in South Australia. He's actually actively gone out and recruited people who stand up for conservative values in the Liberal Party um, and hopefully over time, because as Churchill said, democracy is the worst kind of system unless you see all the others that have been tried. Democracy at times reduces bad outcomes, but over time, eventually, people realise that if you don't like them, you vote the bums out and you get the people you want. Exactly. People get what they want. Good on you, Rocco. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. Good to talk to you as always. That's Perth law academic Rocco Loyacano. And just before I go, you may have heard me quote this before. In his book, The New Social Contract, former Liberal Federal MP Tim Wilson says that the focus for a young person is to finance a home. Later in life, he or she then starts thinking about financing retirement. Australia's compulsory superannuation scheme reverses this. Workers start saving for retirement in their teens with their first pay packet. That money is then locked away in super funds for decades. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the people who own the money struggle to save a deposit for a house, while these days paying extortionate rent just to survive. 
Successive Australian governments have been reluctant to increase the supply of housing because it would reduce the value of the existing stock. Australian voters divide almost perfectly into three groups, those who don't own a house, those who are paying off a mortgage, and those who own outright. The fact that two thirds have a vested interest in real estate uh, prices continuing to rise has spooked politicians from doing anything for the unlucky Australians struggling to get their foot in the door. So it is to Anthony Albanese's credit that in today's budget, he promised to build a million new homes, according to a report this afternoon in nine newspapers. It's an easy one to sneak through right now, given that house prices are declining anyway. This should be a no-brainer in a country like Australia. But the irony of this should not go by without remark. Albo is going to finance these houses partly by encouraging money from, you guessed it, the super funds. Well, Albo, it's not your money, mate, and it doesn't belong to the super funds either. It belongs to the people you think you're helping to buy homes. If ever there was an argument for governments to get the hell out of our lives, this is it. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at 8 for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at 9. Good night.